The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want to welcome you today to the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is an outreach of Zion Primitive Baptist Church, which is located in the Zion community near Gordo, Alabama. I'm Elder Chris McCool, and I serve as pastor of Zion Primitive Baptist Church. We are a congregation of believers in the sovereign grace of God where families worship together through the simple practice of preaching, praying, and singing. If you live in this area or are visiting here, we would love to have you attend worship services with us. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. and the first and third Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m. I'm happy to note that our daily podcast is featured on Grace Alone Radio, which you can find at gracealoneradio.net. You can find the schedule on the website, and you can also download an app to your phone so that you can listen wherever you are. Grace Alone Radio is a 24-hour streaming service which carries the message of God's sovereign grace around the clock and around the world. Zion Primitive Baptist Church is located at 9487 County Road 49, Gordo, Alabama. That's near the intersection of County Road 49 and Alabama Highway 159, about 10 miles north of Gordo, Alabama, and about 8 miles northeast of Reform, Alabama. If you're interested in finding more sermons, you can go to our website at zionpbc.com, that's z-i-o-n-p-b-c.com, where you'll find all of our posted sermons as well as a link to subscribe to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our website which will update you every time a new sermon is posted. Today, we're going back to our introduction to the book of Revelation that was preached by Elder Buddy Abernathy several years ago. In this part five, we are looking still at the first eight verses of the first chapter. This is what I've termed our introduction to the book of Revelation, as we've broken it down into some subparts that will help us to understand it and follow it in a more consistent and understandable manner. Today, Brother Buddy deals particularly with the description of Jesus Christ as seen by John there on the Isle of Patmos. He points out some things about him that are fundamental doctrinal truths. One of the most important things in understanding Revelation is that the highly symbolic language of the latter parts of Revelation should never obscure or overrule the clear doctrinal truths found elsewhere in the Scripture. And it's interesting that John starts out with some of these clear doctrinal truths. Join us today as we continue in part five of this introduction to the book of Revelation. But first, we have a song selection that I hope you enjoy. After the song, please stay tuned for another message of God's sovereign grace from the Zion Primitive Baptist Church pulpit. My
read tonight from Revelation chapter 1 and verses 4 through 7. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. And to him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. Now these are the verses that we read the last time we spoke from Revelation, but we only focused on two portions of these verses, and so that's why we're going back to it tonight, our purpose last time was to emphasize the two primary doctrinal truths contained in these verses, which must be the foundation for however you interpret the rest of the book of Revelation. And one of those is at the end of verse 5 where he says, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. This is who John is recognizing. This is who he's making reference to. This is who is to be glorified. And this is one of those verses, like one preacher said, that you can't misunderstand it without assistance. It says he loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's about as simple as you can make it. So when you get to the highly symbolic language later on in this book, keep that verse in mind. Jesus washed us from our sins in his own blood. It's not conditional upon you meeting any conditions or requirements. It's not based on how you figure out where you fit in the book of Revelation as far as a timeline is concerned. But remember that, that he washed us from our sins in his own blood. And then the other thing we emphasized was the first part of verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him. When the Lord returns, it's not going to be a secret. It's not something that only a small portion of his people are going to be aware of. It says he cometh with clouds. And if you'll do a word study on that word clouds in the New Testament and look at all those verses that use the word clouds in conjunction with the Lord's second coming, you'll see that it's an event that's known worldwide. Every eye shall see him. So as you read the book of Revelation and 
see how that you could make a variety of interpretations. Don't let your interpretations violate these two doctrinal truths that are literally taught all through the New Testament. Jesus saved us. He redeemed us. And redemption is not complete until you get what you paid for. And he's coming back to get what he paid for. So let's now begin in verse 4 and look at the other parts of these verses. But I just wanted to, wanted to emphasize those two important points. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now this would be what we know today as uh, modern day Turkey. But this is the particular region under consideration. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now there were seven literal churches that he will address in the next couple of chapters. But the word seven is also significant in that it ordinarily means that which is complete. It's the number of completion. And so I believe we can at least gain from that that these are messages that can apply to the Lord's churches throughout time. I believe these are uh, some complete messages that are not only... Uh, relevant then but they're relevant now and we can gain uh, a wide understanding of how the Lord works with his churches. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now notice this. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. Now I want you to notice there he says, grace be unto you and peace. That expression, and sometimes it may incorporate the word mercy, but that general expression, grace and peace, is used in the introduction of all of the Apostle Paul's epistles. Now, the book of Hebrews doesn't in and of itself state who the author is, and we don't find the expression there, and it's not my purpose to debate who wrote the book of Hebrews. But in all of those epistles that identify that Paul is the author, you'll find them introduced in this way, grace and peace, or grace, mercy, and peace. Both of Peter's epistles begin with a... Uh, a phrase similar to this, and here we have it in the last book of the Bible. Now, you know, when we're talking to each other, we'll often use introductory phrases, and they really don't have meaning to them. It's just a routine practice, like when you ask someone, well, hey, how are you doing? We really don't mean a lot by it. It's just a way to start the conversation there are some people you don't want to ask that because they'll spend a lot of time telling you how they're doing and it's usually not how good they're doing. One of the things that I began practicing as a preacher when, uh, when I was pastoring churches, when I would call members, I wouldn't ask them how they're doing. I would ask them what they're doing. And you'll get real answers usually. 
You know, if you call people and ask them how they're doing, they'll usually say fine, regardless of the situation. But the point I'm trying to get across to you as the inspired word of God is never just routine without any meaning. And so while you might receive a letter from someone that says, I hope all is well with your family, and you may just read over that part of it because that's really not what their intentions are in writing you. They usually have something more specific. Yet this is God's inspired word, and I don't want us to overlook this as just an introductory greeting. Furthermore, we as primitive Baptists may tend to overlook it more than others because we ordinarily think of grace as it relates to our salvation, and it certainly does. We believe salvation is by grace, period. But that's not the only way the word grace is used in the Bible. You know, when, when the Bible talks about being filled with the Spirit, when the Bible talks about laying hold on eternal life. There are many ways the Bible will make reference to God's grace or God's spirit in how that we are under its influence in our lives. And that influence may vary based on how we're behaving ourselves. You know, if you're living in willful sin, you're not going to feel the spirit in a good way, you might feel it in a bad way. So our behavior can affect the manifest presence of the Spirit in our life. So the idea here is the writer expressing his will that you would experience the influence of the Spirit of God. Grace be unto you, and notice what the consequence is. Grace be unto you, and peace. Now since this is used, as I've already referenced, at least 16 times in the New Testament, I want us to really remember this. And there's a hymn that came to my mind that explains, or rather expounds on what this expression means. It's a hymn most of us are familiar with, number 385, O for a breeze of heavenly love. Now this hymn verbalizes that idea. Grace be unto you in peace. But it's coming from the perspective of the person who desires to receive grace and peace. Notice this hymn. And by the way, the man that wrote this hymn was the, uh, we might say, the second man that was responsible for publishing the, uh, the Sacred Harp hymnal. And this man, uh, E.J. E. King, died at age 23. He was the mayor of, I believe it was Hamilton, Georgia, some small town in Georgia. He was the county clerk. And so evidently, though he died when he was 23, he was very involved. But notice what he says. Oh, for a breeze of heavenly love to waft my soul away, 
to that celestial world above where pleasures ne'er decay. Eternal Spirit, deign to be my pilot here below to steer through life's tempestuous seas where stormy winds do blow. I need the influence of thy grace to speed me on my way lest I should loiter in my race or turn my feet astray. Are not thy mercy sovereign still, and thou a faithful God? Wilt thou not grant me warmer zeal to run the heavenly road? From rocks of pride on either side, or on either hand, from quicksands of despair, O oh, guide me safe on Canaan's land through every latent snare. Anchor me in that port above on that celestial shore where dashing billows never move, where tempests never roar. Now he's not speaking particularly about going to heaven. He's speaking about his desire for heaven's influence on his life here. And that's the thing I long for the most. Isn't that true with you? I'm, uh, I'm not happy without the influence of the Spirit in my life. Oh, for a breeze of heavenly love. That's the idea here. He says, grace unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. Now, this is not the only place that that terminology is used where he refers to God as existing now, existing in the past, and existing in the future. As a matter of fact, it's used just a little later in this chapter. And so as you think about this book and who it was written to, it was written to churches that were going through persecution, and surely that's one of the things that needs to be emphasized, that God is eternal. And notice several scriptures I want to turn to, although this is primarily referring in this context to God the Father, we can certainly apply it to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. One of my favorite verses about God being eternal is in Psalms uh, 90 and verse 10. And it's uh, a verse two, I believe. And it's interesting that this is a psalm that addresses the brevity of our life. Look at Psalm 90, verse 10. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. You may live beyond 70 or 80, but the essence of your strength will eventually become labor and sorrow. He's not speaking here necessarily of emotional sorrow, but just the difficulty and the discouragement that you may face just physically getting around. But in contrast, look in Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Did you notice it uses the present tense regardless of where you are 
in eternity past or eternity future. You go back to the Garden Eden, Garden of Eden, and in eternity past. Or if you go into the future, past the end of this world, regardless of where you are, or regardless of what point of that timeline from which you consider God, that He's present. Thou art God. The same is said of Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. And uh, verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday and today and forever. That's something we ought to long for in our country today. Jesus Christ, the same. There's so much change in our world. There's so much of this so-called relative morals. There's people that will say, well, this may not be your truth, but this is my truth. That's a self-contradiction, isn't it? This says Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Not only is God described this way and Jesus described this way, but notice here, he's speaking of our salvation, Hebrews 9, 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, I want to make just a side note there. Those of you that understand grace have probably had this thought. When I'm talking to people that don't understand this concept, I always think, and sometimes I'll say this, that those Israelites and those Old Testament priests never made sacrifices or offerings to Israel. They made them to God. And the issue was, does God accept it? Well, notice here, it says, uh, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, speaking of Jesus, he entered in once into the holy place. You know, those priests entered there once, yearly, not with their own, with with blood for the sacrifice. Uh, They made that sacrifice yearly there in the temple, but here it's using that in a symbolic way, referring to what Jesus did on the cross by his own blood. He entered once into the holy place, having obtained, past tense, having obtained Eternal redemption for us. He washed us from our sins in his own blood. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus made his offering through 
the eternal, capital S, Spirit. God's eternal. Jesus is eternal. The Spirit's eternal. They're all the same yesterday and today and forever. And that's one of the things that we need to know and realize when we're going through hardship, when we're being threatened by the authorities or when we're being persecuted. That's what the Lord inspired John to express to these seven churches. He says, I'm writing to you from him which is and which was and which is to come. I'm writing you in the authority and in the name of the eternal God. If things are going bad in your life, we're prone to think, this is the only time there's ever been. You know, we, we focus on what I'm going through now. And he wanted them to know that there's something far beyond their present temporal sufferings. And then he says, And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now that's a capital S. In 1 John 5, 7, which is deleted from all other modern English translations except the King James, and if you want to look into that, it may be included in one of them, but I don't think it's included in any of the modern English translations. 1 John 5, 7 says, There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So we know the Godhead is not made up of God the Father, God, God the uh, Son, and God the three spirits. That's not the Trinity. Remembering that the book of Revelation is symbolic. You know, even when he begins to address the churches, which we would think, well, he, he, this is not the difficult spiritual uh, uh, sim symbolic part. This is just him writing to the churches. Well, even then he refers to these churches uh, and, and, and he refers to the angels as the seven stars and he refers to the churches as the seven candlesticks. So he's already incorporating language to represent things. I believe when he refers to the seven spirits here, there are two things you can glean from this. There are seven churches. And seven is the number of completion. I don't believe he's saying that, oh, everything else in the Bible that says there are three that bear record in heaven, that that's all wrong, that actually there are seven spirits that make up the third person of the Godhead. That's not what he's saying. He's saying as in the same way, notice the emphasis, in the same way that God is eternal, Jesus is eternal, and the Spirit is eternal, in the same way the Spirit, which is God's ministry to the church in this world, is sufficient and complete for all seven churches, and He can provide to each church everything they need. And again, this is a time when they needed to understand that. We need to understand that today. 
The Spirit's not limited. Seven spirits which are before His throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, in other words, whatever Jesus says is true. When you go read in John chapter 6, that's a long chapter. I believe there's around 70 verses. But in John chapter 6, that's where Jesus says things like this. I came not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. There's a lot of statements where Jesus emphasizes that I am witnessing God, I'm, I'm a witness for God. I and my Father are one. That's what Jesus is. His testimony is totally reliable, accurate, and trustworthy. Due to the constraints of time, we will stop the message here. But please join us tomorrow for the conclusion of this message. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. That's Z-I-O-N-P-B-C-1847 at gmail.com. Or you can email me directly at jchrismacool at gmail.com. That's the letter J. C-H-R-I-S-M-C-C-O-O-L at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you is my prayer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.